Let's turn to God's Word, to the book of Romans, chapter 9. And going to read from the beginning of the chapter, though we're going to look at verses 1 to 16. Romans chapter 9, page 1135. I speak the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience confirms it in the Holy Spirit. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, those of my own race, the people of Israel's. Theirs is the adoption as sons. Theirs the divine glory, the covenants, the receiving of the law, the temple worship, and the promises. Theirs are the patriarchs, and from them is traced the human ancestry of Christ, who is God over all, forever praised. Amen. It is not as though God's Word had failed, for not all who are descended from Israel are Israel, nor because they are His descendants are they all Abraham's children. On the contrary, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. In other words, it's not the natural children who are God's children, but it is the children of the promise who are regarded as Abraham's offspring. For this is how the promise was stated, at the appointed time I will return and Sarah will have a son. Not only that, but Rebekah's children had one and the same father, our father Isaac. Yet before the twins were born or had done anything good or bad, in order that God's purpose and election might stand, not by works, but by him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger, just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Now, um, if you're here and you are not a Christian, we're going to look at one of the most difficult passages in the whole Bible for Christians. And as we're reading it, you may think, did that just say what I just thought it said? It's very difficult. But a lot of, please be assured, a lot of Christians think that. I want you to think of it in this way. Does God keep His promises? Because we're asking you to trust God. Does God keep His promises? Um, I was intrigued listening, um, praying with David and the verse about trust not in princes. People are very cynical about politicians because politicians make promises. These are my red lines, and they're gone. They're, it's, if you trust absolutely, but maybe not just politicians, others, friends, even family. When a couple get married, they stand at the front here. They make promises to one another. If you thought that the person beside you would not keep their promises, you wouldn't marry them. So the question of God keeping His promises is very important, and we'll return to that. But for those of us who are Christians as well, this particular passage, I, I know that there are people who think, I wish Romans had finished at Romans 8. And like 9, 10, 11, could we kind of put that as a footnote somewhere? Can we discover some ancient manuscript that said it wasn't really part of it? Um, and I understand that temptation considerably, but I've really, really enjoyed uh, thinking about this and looking at this, and I didn't really expect to, so much so that I was going to go right to the end of the chapter, but we'll do well to get to verse 13 this morning. And um, over Christmas, we're, we're not going to be looking at Romans 9, but we will return to it in the new year. But I think that what we do when there's a difficult portion of the Bible indicates where we're at as Christians. We shouldn't just give up on it. Martin Lloyd-Jones states this. He says, it seems to me to be one of the great causes of trouble in the church at the present time. 
Christian people have become lazy. They pick and choose in the scriptures. They have their favorite passages and avoid others. And thus there is great ignorance concerning certain fundamental and essential doctrines. There is nothing more glorious than this truth that we are considering, and that's partly why it's so difficult. We must therefore apply ourselves to it, but we must do so, of course, in the right spirit. We must be humble, and we must be ready to learn. I do think we do that. I think many of us have our favorite passages, our favorite doctrines, and some of us, we even choose our our church like that. I think one of the great weaknesses of the church in this city uh, and throughout Scotland is people pick and mix and we, we have our opinions, what we like and what we want. And we, we really need to stop doing that. We really need to have a, a greater humility. We really need to listen before we voice our opinions. So let's listen to what God says. Verse 6, it's not as though God's word had failed. Let, let me consider... First of all, um, another basic principle of reading the Bible is that we understand or we try and read everything in context. We should ask, what's the author's purpose? As the Holy Spirit guides them, what is their purpose? We remember that this is the word of God given through men, but it's not the word of man. It is the word of God. And in this context, it's very important where Romans 9 comes. It comes after Romans 8, 7, 6, 5. You, can, you work that one out for yourself. But what was Paul doing? Writing to the mega city of the world. Writing to Rome. Writing to the church in Rome, a church that was relatively small. Writing to a church that had already been thrown out of Rome, or at least the Jewish people had, and m- much of the early church would have been Jewish. Writing to a church where there was considerable tension between people, and uh, particularly between uh, Jews and the the non-Jews, the Gentiles. Writing to a church where he tells them in in Romans 8 that neither, you know, sword or prison or famine or hardship would separate them from the love of God that was in Christ Jesus, and a church that was going to experience all those things. Writing, in other words, to a church in a dark world. And what does he do? He's not there, so he's telling them, reminding them of what the gospel is. He tells them about the context in which they live, which is a world in rebellion against God, same as ours. He asks how we're made right with God. He asks how we cope with ongoing sin within us. In chapter 8, he's come to that section where we talk about, where he talks about us having assurance given by the Holy Spirit. And during the course of all that, he talks about Israel and the Jewish people. He's talked about how the Old Testament uh, prophets promised the good news, how the Jews were given the law in the Scriptures, but being, just being given the law wasn't enough to save them. They had been given the very words of God, but the righteousness it demanded couldn't come by those words, but came by Jesus Christ. He gives Abraham as the example of someone who's justified by faith. And it's important to understand this. If you were Jewish, you would say, I'm of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And uh, he's going to talk about Isaac and Jacob in this passage as we read. And he, he talks about the need for us to be released from the law so that we can be bound to Christ. We're given assurance by the Spirit as we trust in Jesus. 
And at the end of chapter 8, he talks about God being sovereign and working all things for the good of those who love him. Nothing is able to separate us from the love of God in Christ. Now, so many of us accept that, but then we don't accept this. And yet this is what that is based on. Nothing is able to separate us from the love of God in Christ. Why? Because what use is that promise if it's failed? Remember the time you stood and you pledged your undying loyalty to your spouse and they did the same to you, and then 10 years later they've walked out on you. What use is their promise if it failed? What use is the promise of any of the politicians if it fails? And what use is any of God's word if God's promise can fail? And a lot of Christians read the Bible in this way. They, they read it as though there was plan A, which God had in the Old Testament, and that didn't work, so he had plan B. And then he sent along Jesus. But Paul's argument is very, and to me, it's incredibly compelling. He's saying, no, 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 it's not plan A, plan B. He's saying this was God's plan all along. Because if God's plan A can fail, then why can't his plan B fail? And plan C and plan D. And, you know, some of you understand this. You've grown up in a kind of psychology which says, God has plan A for my life. So you you get really angst. You're a young person. You're saying, did I just miss the person I was supposed to marry? I mean, it's a bit rough if you get down to somebody and you say, well, you're uh, not plan A, plan B, you're plan double Z. Um, That's, you know, I've, I've gone through a whole lot and I've missed all these great opportunities. Or in your job, maybe I missed this, maybe I missed that. And I think that's a very sad way to live, and it's a very dangerous way to live, and it's a very entrapping way to live, because it doesn't let you make mistakes. It doesn't let you get things wrong without having to move on to another plan. Now, what Paul does here, he's dealing with a real objection. I think a lot of Romans is Paul dealing with objections that people would have. And here's the objection. The Jews are God's chosen people. The vast majority of the Jews do not accept what Paul is teaching. Therefore, Paul's message cannot be from God. Or, God's promise has failed because the Jews have not accepted the message about the Messiah. The vast majority have not accepted that. Israel, God promised Israel would be blessed, but Israel has forfeited forfeited that blessing through unbelief. So if that was true of Israel, why couldn't that be true of us? You could be a Christian, and then we all know this. We know people who have been Christians for many years, and then suddenly they announce they've walked away. I have friends who are ministers, preach the gospel, who now say, well, I don't believe. So could that happen to any one of us? And why wouldn't it happen to us? And I think this is a very, very profound question because if God's promises cannot be trusted, we cannot have faith in him. So this is Paul's answer. And I don't think that that when people read this passage, I think we read it with a whole set of preconceptions and ideas that we end up answering questions that are not being asked. So this is what Paul says. First of all, you'll note, it is not as though God's word had failed. The first principle is absolutely this. God's word does not fail. Let God be true, every man a liar. God's word does not fail. In Mark chapter 7 and verse 3, Jesus said to the Jewish leaders, thus you nullify the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down, and you do many things like that. Religious traditions can contradict 
the Word of God. Our own emotions can go against the Word of God. The, the, the society and the culture in which we're in goes against the Word of God. But God's Word does not fail. Now, one thing about that is it's, it's very simple. I mean, I, one of the most silly remarks that get made to me in discussion and debate, and yet one that people think is incredibly profound, is this. You follow a book that's 2,000 years old. Now, why is that a silly remark? Well, what is the fact that it's 2,000 years old got to do with whether it's true or not? But it's, it's, it's this idea that people then were backward and so on. I think that this is wonderful that the Word of God is the same, we have it the same as 2,000 years ago, as 1,000 years ago, as 500 years ago. I like reading people called the early church fathers from the 3rd, 4th, and 5th centuries. And I read them and I recognize my brothers in that. I like reading the reformers from um, 15th and 16th centuries. And again, it's the same word of God. I like reading the Puritans. I like reading uh, Spurgeon from the 19th century or Martin Lloyd-Jones from the 20th century. And it's, they're all teaching the word of God. The word of God has never failed and it doesn't fail. The church has often failed, but God's word does not fail. You, you, there are certain guiding principles you need to take when you're discussing and looking at questions and some are on the nature of the character of God and the importance of truth, but others are also on this. Simply, God's Word does not fail. And when, when people undermine the Word of God, when people attack the Word of God, then what they're doing is they're taking away the basis for our assurance. God's Word cannot fail. Now, that doesn't mean to say you'll come to God's Word and go, yes, I like that. It doesn't mean that you'll come and you'll say, I understand that. It means that you will wrestle with things all your days. So this particular passage, I've wrestled with it many times. But it's still the Word of God. Secondly, a really important principle. The second part of verse 6. Not all who are descended from Israel are Israel. Lloyd-Jones calls this one of the most important statements in the whole Bible. You will save yourself an enormous amount of difficulty if you grasp this principle. Not all who are Israel, not all who are descended from Israel, are Israel. And what is he saying? He's saying that it's not physical descent but spiritual reality that matters. So if you went back to Romans 2.28, he's already said this. A person is not a Jew who is only one outwardly. Nor is circumcision merely outward and physical. No, a person is a Jew who is one inwardly. And circumcision is circumcision of the heart by the Spirit, not by the written code. Such a person's praise is not from other people, but from God. And what Paul is saying is something incredibly radical for many of the people who would be listening to him. He's saying to them, you are not a Jew in in the sense of the deepest meaning that the Bible will have, even if you were in the tribe of Benjamin, even if you were, you know, all your descendants are Jewish in that way, even if you were brought up with the law, ultimately a person is a Jew who is one inwardly, whose God's Spirit has worked upon. 
And can you imagine how hard that is for people to grasp? Really difficult to grasp, for many people to grasp. Not all who are descended from Israel are Israel. And so he talks about the children of the promise. He wants to give them an example. And so he gives the example of Isaac. It is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. It's not the natural children, but the children of the promise. Because Isaac, the child of Rachel, and Ishmael, the child of Hagar. Now, what was the promise? He cites it for us. It comes from Genesis 18. Is anything too hard for the Lord? I will return to you at the appointed time next year, and Sarah will have a son. Now, that's an amazing story in terms of this, because Sarah was 90 years old. She's barren. Neither in those days nor in these days do you have children if you are 90 years old. Abraham is 100 years old. Genesis 17, 17, will the son be born to a man 100 years old and will Sarah at the age of 90 bear a child? What was the promise? The promise not, was not that there were two children standing there, Isaac and Ishmael, and God said, right, I'm choosing that one. The promise was that you are going to have a child, and this child, through this child, there will be great blessing. God produced Isaac in order that his promise might be worked out. Now, if we go on to uh, the next verses, verses 10 to 13, not only that, but Rebekah's children had one and the same father, our father Isaac. Yet before the twins were born or done anything good or bad in order that God's purpose and election might stand, not by works but by him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger, just as it is written, Jacob I loved but Esau I hated. We'll get to that last verse in a moment, but notice this. Isaac and Ishmael, you see, you could have argued they had different mothers. So a, a, a Jewish person who was arguing for descent could say, well, they've got different mothers, so that's, it's still the natural birth that matters. But Jacob and Esau were twins. And what's being taught here is that God's choice, choice of Isaac and Jacob does not originate in them and their works, but in God's choosing, God's election. The older will serve the younger is straight there because that was against the traditions and convention of the time. We know that the context of this in, in Paul's day was that the Jews and the Edomites, the two different nations that came from these two children ended up hating one another. But all of this was said before either of them was born. Now, what about this verse, Jacob, how I loved, Esau, have I hated? It's a quote from Malachi. And it's incredibly foolish to read the Bible and say, oh, this, oh wait a minute, because it literally doesn't mean they go around and hate. It's, it's a, it's a, Hebrew way of speaking about preference. So Jesus did it, for example, in Luke 14, 26. If anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. If you take that in an absolute literalist sense, what you're saying is, you're here, you're not a Christian, you become a Christian, you go home, you say to your mom, I hate you because Jesus told me to. It's not what it means at all. What he's simply saying is this. 
you put God first. It's a, it's a, it's a way of speaking. And in Jacob have I loved, Esau have I hated, that's saying God put Jacob first. He was the one. The older will serve the younger. He was the one who was going to be served. Charles Hodge says this, that hate means to love less and to regard and treat with less favor. Now, that itself may seem bad enough, but I don't think it is. We'll see why it's important, what's being taught here. But you also need to remember this. Esau, what did he do? He forfeited his own birthright by his own actions. His worldliness and his brother's deceit were involved in the working out of all of this. And we're left with this, this paradox always of human responsibility and our actions being interwoven with God's sovereignty. But all the time, remember that Paul is teaching God's promise cannot be broken. Now, when people read this passage, and um, next time we look at it, we will look at this objection in a little bit more detail because that's what verses uh, 14 onwards go to look at, is God being unfair. Let me simply put it this way. There's a teaching about this that comes um, perhaps best expressed by Robbie Burns, where he has the poem which talks about God going, aim for heaven, nine for hell. And so as though there's a group of people going, right, you're heaven, Nah, you're not heaven, you're hell, and so on. And I was very helped by uh, Lloyd-Jones' teaching on this. He says this, let me just quote this. According to the apostles' teaching, God's electing and selecting is not a matter of an arbitrary selection out of a mass of humanity. Yet I am sure, says Lloyd-Jones, that many have always thought of it like that, that God is confronted by the whole of humanity, and that what the apostle is teaching here is that God looks at these people and says, I'm going to choose some of them, I'm going to forgive them and give them salvation, I'm going to reject the others. Now I assert this is not what the apostle says, it is in fact to misunderstand what he is saying. And I think it is to mis. I think Lloyd-Jones is right, I think it is to misunderstand what he is saying. Because what the apostle is doing here is he's talking about God producing a people for himself, about God fulfilling his purpose. And here's the horrible reality that we don't want to face up to, but is demonstrably true. Every single human being is lost. Every single human being is in Adam. Every single human being is sinful, and every single human being, if we are left to our own devices, We destroy ourselves. We destroy humanity. All humanity is lost in Adam. A church or a preacher or anyone who teaches, well, there are some people who are good and there are some people who are bad. There's the good empire and the bad empire. No, it's it's false. It's wrong. We are all lost. The one great provable doctrine, as G.K. Chesterton argued, of of Christianity is original sin. Every one of us is sinful. We are all lost. It's not God standing and saying, oh, well, they'll be okay. No, they won't be okay. They'll be okay. No, they won't be okay. That's not how it works. We're all lost. So what does God do? And that, that's the point of the previous chapters of Romans, that God is creating for himself a new humanity. A great number 
by the way, which according to Revelation, no one can count. Why did God do it? You see, if you were maybe the Jewish people, you would think, well, it's just the Jews, this tiny nation. God's going to protect us and preserve us. And now it looks as though the Jews haven't been protected and preserved. And Paul says, and argue, Paul comes and he argues, well, actually, God's promise hasn't failed because it was God's intention all along to create through his son a new humanity. God's purpose will not fail. God is determined to save. God chooses to save. Now, it's interesting, you see. In order to protect our choice, we say God can't have a choice. So, in that sense, we would all go to hell. We're saying, well, well, to be fair, God can't save anybody. Or he's got to save everybody. Why? Now, again, we'll, we'll deal with that uh, objection if you come back in, in the new year. But the point of what Paul is saying here is God's promise does not fail. It's fulfilled in the Israel within Israel. There's a natural seed and there's a spiritual seed. So, I think if you look at those passages, that is clearly what he's teaching. He's being asked, hasn't God's promise failed? He's saying, no, God's promise hasn't failed. Hasn't failed as regards Israel. Hasn't failed as God's purpose for the whole humanity. This is what God is doing. And this is always the way. You say that you are the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Well, think about it. Isaac and Jacob, why are they the way they were? Because God chose them to be like that. Why are you Christians in Rome? Because God chose you. Why are you Christians here in St. Peter's and Dundee? Because God chose you. And the alternative to that is to think, well, I did it. And that, or someone else did it. And that's a nightmare. So let me just apply this in, in five different ways. Firstly, this. I'll stress this again. God's word does not fail, but the church does when it goes away from that word. I don't know if you're as obsessed with Brexit as I am, but actually even I've got to a stage of being not another word, please go away. I don't want to hear anything else. I'd rather watch paint dry or neighbors or something than, than hear another news program about politicians running around, each of them clueless about what they're, what they're going to do. It's just so depressing. And then you know, if you want to get depressed, sometimes it's okay, but I get up on a Sunday morning, I shouldn't do it, I know, I know, but I, I listen to the Sunday morning service, and both of them this morning were wrist-slashing stuff. It was just awful in a spiritual sense. It was really just, oh, Lord, what's gone wrong with your church? And then uh, I happened to read a couple of Christian magazines this week. Oh, no, well, surely not. And then there's personal stuff that can happen to you and you can just be overwhelmed by things and overwhelmed by darkness and overwhelmed by discouragement. And it's important when all of these things happen to hold on to this. God's word does not fail, but the church often does, especially when the church goes away from that word. Because it's not being in the church or being brought up in the church that matters. The church, like Israel, often goes astray, often turns away from the gospel. I, uh, there's no, no need to mention the denomination, but I've got this Advent calendar, online Advent calendar from a Christian denomination. And what are we? We're the ninth. So we're nine days in, not one mention of the gospel so far. Nothing. It's all just social liberalism. There's nothing in the gospel. 
The church often turns away from the gospel. And here's the thing. When it turns away from the gospel, it ceases to be the church. But there is always a true church founded on the gospel. And I think of that very much like, um, some of you know I'm not actually brilliant at gardening. So there's a plan that you could stop all the need for weeding by just concreting over the lot. But I know that when you concrete over the lot, the, work, the, the weeds will always find a way through. And to me, the gospel is like that. You try and squash the gospel, and it will always find a way through. And I'm absolutely confident that it may not be through the, the structures and the procedures and the denominations that we think it will be, but God can work and does work and brings his word in the most amazing ways. So yes, a monk who is psychologically disturbed and hung up about so many different things like Martin Luther ends up taking on the whole world. And God blesses that. And who knows who God is going to use in the future. God's word never, ever fails. See, the trouble is, when you rely on the church rather than on the word of God, you end up losing both. Because any church can turn away. Any church can become corrupt. Look at the seven churches in Revelation. All of them, to some degree, thriving churches, none of them existing now. We need to be very careful not to put our faith and trust in the church, not to despise the church, but our authority is not the church. That's where the Catholic church gets it so wrong, because you you cannot say that the ultimate authority is the pope or, or the church telling us about the Bible. The authority is God's word, and God's word will not and cannot return to him empty. So when Paul says, has God's word failed? Of course not. It hasn't failed. It's not going to fail. Secondly, we cannot rely on our birth, on our gifts, on our culture. We must always rely on Christ. Those who say they're brought up in the church and have Christian parents, does that make them Christians? No, it doesn't. You're baptized as a child. Does that make you a Christian? No, it doesn't. You're baptized as an adult. Does that make you a Christian? No, it doesn't. What about being in a Christian country? That doesn't make you a Christian. What about being a member of this church? That doesn't make you a Christian. We can belong to the visible church, but not to the body of Christ. We cannot rely on our births, our gifts, our culture, our churches. We rely on Christ. We're going to sing in a moment, in in Christ alone, my hope is found. And yet so many of us sing that, we don't mean it. Because our hope too often gets loaded onto other people who cannot bear that. We cannot rely on our births, gifts, and culture. I think it's a wonderful privilege to be born into the church of God in the visible church. I think it's wonderful all these children, but please, we always will teach the children, you, you, you need Christ for yourselves. We all do. And I do fear that some of you here are relying on your relationship with the church, are relying on your culture, are relying on, on so many different things, and you're not relying on Christ. But all these things fail. Christ won't. Thirdly, Jesus teaches this. Um, let's go on to, to 
the Jews who had believed him, Jesus said, if you hold to my teaching, you're really my disciples, then you'll know the truth, and the truth will set you free. If you know that passage, you know that Jesus is really saying to the Jewish people and the Jewish leaders, it's not enough what you've got. You need me, and you need my teaching. And then in John 13, he says, I know those I have chosen. You did not choose me, he says to his disciples, but I chose you and appointed you so that you might go and bear fruit, fruit that will last, and so that whatever you ask in my name, the Father will give you. Or in his great high priestly prayer, John 17, verse 6, I revealed you to those whom you gave me out of the world. See, God is creating a new humanity, and what God is doing, he's taking people, and by his spirit working in, and in a sense, giving them to Christ, and Christ is doing it the other way. Jesus teaches that God is sovereign and that God's promises will not fail. And if you and I claim to be Christians, we must not, because we don't understand it or because we try and square the circle or because we philosophically have an objection, we must not go against what Christ teaches. Because God is the one who saves. God's word does not fail. We can't rely on our births and gifts. Jesus teaches that he is sovereign, and God is the one who saves. I love what John Stott says about this. If we were responsible for our own salvation, either in whole or even in part, we would be justified in singing our praises and blowing our own trumpet in heaven. Instead of singing, I really want to praise you, we'd be singing, I really want to praise me. And to be honest, we have to be careful in how we select our songs because I see quite a lot of contemporary worship songs really are actually all about me. And they shouldn't be. There's a, a parody on YouTube, which is quite funny. Um, just go, it's all about me, Lord. And, and when you're listening to it, you realize, well, we're very close to singing that sometimes, but it's not. It's not about you. It's not about me. I know. See, the trouble is when you and I are here, when I'm up here, I'm thinking, that, you know, the danger is always about me. No, it's not. It's about God. And you're saying, listening, say, well, what can I get? What can I? It's not about you. It's not about your glory. It's about God's glory. And that is so hard for us to accept. But we don't blow our own trumpet, says Stott. But such a thing is inconceivable. God's redeemed people will spend eternity worshiping him, humbling themselves before him in grateful adoration, ascribing their salvation to him and to the Lamb, and acknowledging that he alone is worthy to receive all praise, honor, and glory. Why? Because our salvation is due entirely to his grace, his will, his initiative, his wisdom, and his power. Think of salvation as a chain of a thousand links. If one of those links is you, it's going to snap. You can't do it. You can't save yourself. It's Jesus who saves. It is all of God. Romans 8, the bit that we, we all love, if God is for us, who can be against us? But watch what you subtly do. You say, if I am for God, then how can God be against me? But it's God who's for you. Not, I am for God and therefore God will be for me and therefore everything will be. Why are you for God? It's because God is first for you. Who started it? You know how you have a quarrel sometimes? And you're arguing away and, well, it's your fault. You started it. Well, who started salvation? It was God who started salvation. Of course you're involved. Of course you make decisions. But let me just think of it in this way. You're not a Christian here because you deserve it, because you've been good. You're not a Christian because you've got better understanding of other people. You're not a Christian 
because of your family or because of your heritage or whatever. You are a Christian because God so ordained that you would be in that place at that time, that you would be brought here, that you would hear the word, that you would respond to the word. That may raise lots of questions, and I'm sure will. But the opposite raises even more questions. If your Christianity is dependent on you, then you can lose it. But if it's dependent on God, you can't. Last thing is this. God uses natural means to bring about his supernatural purposes. Galatians 1. Paul says this. When God, who set me apart from my mother's womb and called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me so that I might preach him among the Gentiles. That's an extraordinary statement. Because Saul, as a young man, middle-aged man, went around killing Christians. And yet he says, I was set apart in my mother's womb. I was set apart. I was called by God's grace. I didn't become a Christian until I met Jesus on the road to Damascus. Or maybe after, or even. But he was set apart. God uses natural means to bring about his supernatural purposes. When we're thinking about the incarnation and Jesus, that, of course, is what happens. The incarnation is supernatural, but there's a lot of natural in there too. Jesus really was in the womb. He really was fed. He really did have an umbilical cord. He really was a human baby. Wasn't this ethereal, supernatural presence and force? So naturally you were brought into this world. How did you come to this church? Did any of you arrive here by angel transport? You're lying in your bed and the angels came and lifted you up and brought you here? No. You came by car, or many of you, I hope, walked. You, you got here some way. If people are listening to this and they, and they listen to it on the internet, it, it, I mean, is, is God just beaming things into their ears or is in actual fact, does he, is he using the technology that we have? He's using the technology that we have. But all that God is doing whether you, you come here, whether you listen online or whatever it is you do, God is calling and God is working out his purpose. And God is working. He's calling a people to himself. He's changing society. See, if I thought it was up to me and if I thought it was up to us and if I thought it was up to the church, you know what happens to this? When I see my own heart, I'd give up. When I see the mess that's in the church, I'd give up. When I see the mess that's in the culture, I would give up. When I look to people who are like, oh, they're my hero, and then I discover they've got feet of clay, I would give up. But when I realize that God is using sinful human beings and flawed structures and so many different things, God is going to work it out. He's going to work all things for the good of those who love him. Why? Because it's his purpose and his plan and his purposes and plans don't fail. Our purposes and plans often do. And I think that's what we remember at Christmas. That's what the incarnation is. I heard somebody preach once and they said God did this and then held his breath while he waited to see what would happen. In other words, God threw the dice. So maybe... The wise men could have led Herod's men to slaughter Jesus. Maybe Jesus could have been killed then. Maybe this could have happened. Maybe that could have happened. But no, God is sovereign over all, uses natural means, uses 
you know, coincidences and chances and all the rest of it. But at the end of it all, we will look back and we will see that God purposed to make a new creation and that's what he is doing. When Christ came, God was creating a new humanity and God is fulfilling his word and his promises ever since. Rather than the church being wiped out just after Pentecost, rather than the church being wiped out in the great persecutions of the first and second centuries, rather than the church being wiped out by those who bitterly attack us in the 21st century, the church will continue to grow because God has purposed it. And that's what Jesus came for. And that's why this is so important to grasp this. If you do not accept a sovereign God, and this is where we come back to the, to the purposes, to the, to the parameters in which we think. God is love. God is just. And God is sovereign. He, he can work out his purposes. It's not enough God being love and not being able to do it. He is sovereign. And so whatever difficulties may be created in your mind by the idea of the sovereignty of God, the difficulties, if you remove that, are far, far greater. You've basically got a choice as a Christian. And I'll say one thing to those of you who are not Christians and then we're done. But this is your choice as a Christian. You can either say, God's really good and he's really powerful, but he needs me and without me, this world's stuffed. And so I've got to really do this for God. The burden you place upon yourself in any way is, it, to me, that's an intolerable burden. You will go crazy in your head. You will get so discouraged. You will get so depressed. You'll get so angry. You will get so frustrated. Now, the alternative to that is not to say, oh, hey, I'm chilled, God's in control. The alternative to that is to have all the anguish and all the rest of it at one level, but at a deeper level, you're saying in the midst of the sorrow, in the midst of the pain, in the midst of the suffering, God is sovereign. God is sovereign. He will work all things together for the good of those who love him. Nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. Why? Because it's not dependent on me, it's dependent on him, and I believe his word, and his word never ever fails. And I know where I want to be. In fact, I would have to say this, that I'm so thankful that the Lord, when I was a very young Christian, I didn't believe this, but when I was a very young Christian, because I listened to someone teaching on this passage and because he didn't like it, he taught the opposite. It made me go, what? That's wrong. That's not what it says. And I went away and I had a look at it. And rather than it become something oppressive to me as I feared, it became a great liberating thing that God is sovereign. And I'm telling you, uh, don't be afraid of the sovereignty of God and of believing in the sovereignty of God. It doesn't turn you fatalistic. It doesn't turn you morbid. It liberates you. It sets you in a spacious place. And then maybe just lastly this to those of you who are not yet Christians. How can you come to God if you don't believe what he says? And if you don't believe that he'll keep his promises. You know, so many people have been let down in life by other people that we project onto God our feelings about that. 
So we'd say, I'd like to believe in Jesus. I'd like to commit myself to Jesus. But what if, so you're a young man, your heart gets broken by the first girl you're going out with. That's it. You are never trusting a woman again, ever. Change your mind a bit later on, but you know, you, you, you can get very, very cynical. And of course, it works the other ways. I don't wish to be sexist in that illustration, but it does work the other way as well. You've been hurt. You've been wounded. So you, you're not going to trust. You're not going to trust. And maybe when you hear about Jesus Christ, you'd say, well, it sounds good and I'd like to do it, but how do I know? How do I know? God will never, he never lies. So everything he says, those who come to me, I will never cast out. You can come to him. This is the God that you can trust, a weak, pathetic God who needs you. It's no use to you. You need a God who's sovereign, who doesn't need you, but who calls you and wants you. May God bless his word and may each of us come to him. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your sovereignty and your power. Thank you that you didn't fail with the people of Israel, but that you brought out of that nation a great, great number. Thank you for people like Paul and and Peter and Mary and Martha and others who are Jewish people who came to know you. But thank you, O Lord, that because so many of the Jewish people rejected you. The gospel spread into so many other places and that's why we're here. Thank you that you've called us to be in this place this morning to hear your word. Thank you for those of us who already know you. Help us to be reassured by what we have heard, that you are sovereign and that you know what you're doing in our lives, in our jobs, with our families and everything. Help us just to Seek to be humble and obedient servants and to rejoice in you. And for any of us who don't know you and who are scared of coming to you, scared that you will let us down, help us to believe what you say, that you will never turn away or forsake anyone who comes to you. For we ask it in your name. Amen. Let's finish by singing in Christ alone. My hope is found. He is my light, my strength, my song, this cornerstone, this solid ground, firm through the fiercest drought and storm. We'll stand to sing, and then please remain standing for the benediction, and after the uh, benediction, tea and coffee will be served at the two stations. Also, there is the bookstall, and please also remember to pick up your letter on the way out. Thank you.
Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy. To the only God our Savior be glory, majesty, power, and authority through Jesus Christ our Lord before all ages, now and forevermore. Amen.